Hello, and welcome to the Tea Leaves Podcast, where our goal is to bring Asia to you through conversations with the people whose lives and work are shaping the Indo-Pacific region. I think that a longer term goal with the United States would also be for us to be able to enter into a bilateral trade agreement in the form that the Koreans and Japanese also have with the United States. And um, over the last year, Taiwan was the ninth largest trading partner of the United States. And so the volume and quality and uh, of, of the trade between us are just so, you know, it's very much mutually complementary as well and significant enough that this is something worth pursuing. China's political influence operations uh, have been very intense in Taiwan, and um, it takes place on multiple fronts, very much in the form of disinformation, but also the manipulation of open social media platforms to disseminate that disinformation. And um, as you know, Taiwan, like the United States, is a very open society where free speech and, and public discussion is very much uh, open. and so. The Chinese tend to manipulate uh, that very open space. And so uh, we have tried to respond by increasing domestic media literacy uh, campaigns and trying to you know, alert the public that all the information that you see online and, and around uh, has to be questioned uh, with a, a rational and scientific and, and a democratic perspective. I'm Rexon Yu, managing partner at the Asia Group. My co-host, Bloomberg TV's Sherry Ahn is off this week and will return in our next episode. This conversation will feature a special guest co-host towards the end from the Asia Group team, so be sure to stick around for our whole conversation. I'm really pleased today to welcome to Tea Leaves Representative B. Kim Shao, who leads the Taipei Economic and Cultural Representative Office in Washington, D.C. Representative Shao has been in her current position as Taiwan's top representative to the United States since July 2020, arriving during the pandemic. Prior to that, she was a senior advisor to the current Taiwanese president, Tsai Ing-wen, at the National Security Council in Taipei. She has also served uh, four terms in Taiwan's legislature, the Legislative Yuan, or LY, where she was, among other things, the ranking member of the Foreign Affairs and Defense Committee. B. Kim was born in Japan and also holds two degrees from Oberlin and Columbia University. Representative Xiao, thank you so much for joining us today. It is a real pleasure to have you. Well, thank you, uh, Rexon, for inviting me. It's a pleasure uh, to have this opportunity to share some of our views. B. Kim, I wanted to start with a late-breaking news event here related to COVID. Taiwan has been at the forefront in combating COVID, and a huge amount of credit is deserved for uh, President Tsai, for you and the entire team. Just recently, both the United States and Japan have announced uh, new measures to uh, reopen in some respects, to ease quarantine requirements for travelers coming into each of these countries. I wanted to just get your sense off the bat. What is the outlook in Taiwan uh, regarding COVID? And what kinds of criteria thresholds do you think are being applied as Taipei considers uh, how and when to reopen? Well, this is a very important and relevant question that involves the 
normalization of global travel and interaction. Within Taiwan, over the past month, uh, we have managed to bring COVID back under control with very few cases over the past couple of weeks. Our society has become more comfortable with a COVID-free environment, um, with most economic activities and uh, social activities uh, resuming um, in, in a normal sense. In fact, over the last year and a half uh, since the outbreak of COVID, uh, except for a, a very painful surge uh, during May and June of this past year, um, we've mostly kept COVID under control. Now, this brings about the next challenge, and that is a part of our control measures have involved very restrictive quarantine regulations, and uh, which means that Taiwan has comfortably been living under within our own uh, bubble, um, mm -hmm. keeping our economy and our schools uh, open. Um, but re-engaging with the world, of course, has many opportunities, but it also brings about risks of uh, breakthrough cases within our society. I think our society actually has a relatively low tolerance uh, for any breakthrough cases. And so the government tends to be a bit more cautious about reopening borders without the quarantine as a buffer between the outside world and our society. Uh, so in the foreseeable future, I expect the quarantine to remain in place. Uh, however, the government is gradually relaxing part of the travel regulations, uh, including some special diplomatic bubbles uh, for essential uh, political and uh, governmental interaction. Mm. Over the Lunar New Year holiday, where we expect large numbers of Taiwanese to come back home to um, be with their families, also a shortened uh, quarantine appeared mm. uh, for those who have been fully vaccinated. I think another factor that will affect our quarantine rule is uh, the domestic vaccination rate. Mm. Um, we had some initial difficulties in and political obstacles in the contracts for our foreign acquisitions of vaccines. But thanks to the United States and Japan for very generous donations, uh, plus uh, now the gradual arrival of the vaccines we have purchased, um, we have reached uh, 70 percent in the first dose. And we're at about 30 percent now for the second dose. Mm. And once we can cover more fully vaccinated uh, members of our population with the second dose, I think our society would also uh, gain a greater degree of confidence in our ability to reopen borders without that quarantine buffer. So um, that's a long answer to your short question. But um, we intend to continue to try to keep COVID under control and keep our economy open and running, uh, which is essential for the global supply chain, uh, especially in the technology sector. Um, number two, we are gradually relaxing uh, those quarantine rules, uh, but in a step-by-step -step approach and um, has to be consistent with our ability to you know, vaccinate, fully vaccinate a larger portion of our population. And is Taiwan uh, more comfortable now with the flow of vaccine? I mean, you mentioned some uneasiness, some difficulties, political challenges. Japan and the United States have, have stepped up. I think other countries mm -hmm. did too, but I just wanted to pause on that piece that the outlook is, is more stable now and assured. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, well, with the combination of the 
uh, donations um, from the United States, Japan, and uh, in Europe, the Czech Republic, Slovakia, Lithuania, and mm -hmm. Poland have also made generous donations uh, to Taiwan. With the combination of those, uh, plus the vaccines that we have contracted or purchased that were, were due to all kinds of reasons and supply chain disruptions, of course, but um, only really delivering at a better pace around now, um, the, the third and fourth quarter of the year. Um, I think we can expect by the end of the year a, a more comfortable rate of vaccine access and also a vaccination. That's terrific. I will say, speaking for myself, I look forward to visiting Taipei in, in the near future. Like you know, many, we've, we've all been grounded from international travel, and um, it feels like uh, ages ago where we've been able to get out. So I, I, I'm very hopeful and uh, looking forward to that day. Representative Rochelle, you, you arrived uh, a little more than a year ago during the pandemic. Uh, it was also a period where uh, we've seen some interesting and very encouraging changes both uh, made by the prior administration, the Trump administration, and uh, followed up by the Biden team with respect to how you and your team interact with the U.S. government, with some restrictions uh, lifted to enable you to engage more directly. Can you just talk a little bit about what it looked like before and what it looks like today for you as you want to engage and work through a variety of issues, defense, trade, public health, COVID, with different officials within the U.S. government? You know, COVID ha has been a challenge, of course, for, yeah. for any sector or anyone, any country um, in terms of engaging. But despite that, the relationship between Taiwan and the United States is just so critically important right now, not only from Taiwan's perspective, but also from the U.S. perspective in terms of Indo-Pacific stability and you know economic supply chain uh, issues, etc. So uh, we have uh, sought to maintain a very close and engaging uh, partnership over this past period of time, despite the disruptions of COVID. And I, I very much appreciate that the willingness from my American counterparts to engage with us has been very forthcoming. It's been very proactive and been consistent across the two administrations with whom I've engaged. Um, and, and I think the interest in, in working out a number of issues with Taiwan uh, is, is there. Um, we, we do appreciate that the formerly known contact guidelines uh, mm -hmm. have been reviewed, and that was a mandate by Congress, actually, through the Taiwan Assurance Act, um, which requested a review of those contact guidelines to better reflect the depth and the breadth of our partnership. And uh, with that review, which crossed over uh, to the two administrations, uh, we are pleased that there are more opportunities to engage uh, directly um, with fewer restrictions. And um, the revised contact guidelines is actually done in the spirit of encouraging a broader and more interaction. And, and so again, that is welcomed. Um, in addition to my own interaction and engagement with uh, many counterparts here in Washington, um, on a global level, Taiwanese representatives in, in other parts of the world have also been engaging mm. with their American counterparts mm -hmm. in um, you know, dealing with global issues. Uh, for example, as we speak, um, the COP26 is taking place. And even though Taiwan remains marginalized, excluded from uh, any UN-related 
institutional activities, but on the sidelines of that, the United States has been extremely supportive of our engagement um, with other countries. And so we can have side events, you know, we're co-sponsoring GCTF activities. And GCTF, just to interrupt, is the is a COVID-related or entity, right? Uh, GCTF, it's called the Global Cooperation and Training Framework, uh, which yeah. was also mandated by Congress. It, mm-hmm. it initiated as a bilateral platform between Taiwan and the United States to help facilitate Taiwan's global engagement yes. on multiple issues. Um, now that partnership has expanded to include Japan as a formal partner. And uh, depending on an issue by issue basis, uh, we've also involved Australia, the United Kingdom, Sweden, uh, some other uh, countries around the world. So uh, we appreciate these expanding partnerships uh, Mm -hmm. to engage on multiple issues that are relevant uh, to the world. Um, As I said, uh, the climate issues is one, healthcare issues, disinformation challenges, um, human rights, economic you know, sustainable uh, development issues, uh, supply chain issues, you know, all of these have been addressed through various uh, GCTF platforms around the world. And that's an important part of the U.S.-Taiwan engagement. And that's uh, not only in our you know, Taiwan-U.S. context of the issues of, of immediate importance, but also um, expanding out into the global issues and, and mm-hmm. finding ways where we can cooperate in other parts of the world. I want to pick up on your comments regarding the economic relationship and technology, and you've mentioned, you know, supply chain integrity and ways that we can work together. You know, Taiwan has been in the news a bit lately, largely focused on defense and security issues with the kinds of aggressive actions taken by Chinese military forces in the Taiwan Strait and around Taiwan. But I want to focus on the economic and trade dimensions for a minute first, B. Kim, and ask you, there have been recent developments bilaterally with the United States and Taiwan to advance trade talks. There's also hope regionally around new initiatives in the digital economy space. But on the bilateral front, what are what are you hoping to see unfold over the next year or two between the United States and Taiwan? Um, well, we've made a lot of progress in our bilateral economic and trade partnership. Notably, this past June, uh, the resumption of TIFA talks, uh, which mm-hmm. is the most important uh, trade discussion platform between us that had been suspended for the previous five years. And so um, that uh, helps us get the it gets the bilateral trade momentum going. And we've followed up with the TIFA council meetings by a lot of working group issues, tackling a variety of issues. And so I think there is some positive momentum there. A second notable platform is the Economic Prosperity Partnership Dialogue that was initiated also last year and um, been carried on uh, by the current administration. Uh, We expect to have another set of discussions soon. And this dialogue incorporates a number of important areas, including supply chain security, science and technology, 5G and trusted networks, and the supply chain needed uh, to facilitate that. It includes uh, investment screening issues, you know, CFIUS-related investment screening issues. The dialogue also incorporated investments and and 
market uh, opportunities for global infrastructure projects. And, and so it, it covers a, a very large variety of you know, economically important issues. Um, this year, we hope to expand that discussion uh, to also address uh, the digital trade issue that, that you just mentioned. Taiwan does seek to further integrate our economy from a regional level as well as global level in other um, partnerships. And digital trade is certainly one venue um, we, we would like to consider. There's the regional trading network, the CPTPP. Uh, we have submitted an application to, to, to join. But in addition to that, we're also pursuing bilateral trade opportunities. I think a longer term goal with the United States would also be for us to be able to enter into a bilateral trade agreement in the form that the Koreans and Japanese also have with the United States. And um, over the last year, Taiwan was the ninth largest trading partner of the United States. And so the volume and quality and uh, of, of the trade between us are just so, you know, it's very much mutually complementary as well and significant enough that this is something worth pursuing. It's a striking fact you just mentioned that Taiwan is um, ninth largest trading partner of the United States. I'm sure many people don't appreciate that. You know, you mentioned the successor to the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, the CPTPP, and Taiwan is applied. I, you know, I'm I'm curious as I look at uh, regional trade prospects from an American perspective. You know, I see a lot of focus, as you and I have just mentioned, on the digital economy and this partnership that now exists between among Singapore, Chile, and New Zealand, the Digital Economy Partnership Agreement. And interestingly, those three countries were were sort of uh, ground zero for launching TPP. 15, 16 years ago. Is Taiwan looking at joining the digital economy um, agreement? Well, um, we are, you know, examining uh, the parameters of, of that mm-hmm. and also um, engaging with other stakeholders uh, to see what other uh, types of arrangements uh, might be out there. But I, I think the fundamental interest of Taiwan is to be more internationally engaged. Um, we, we are you know, after all, a very important trading partner for the region. And so uh, we, we do, you know, intend to to be more engaged on, on multiple fronts, uh, including digital trade. Shifting gears slightly, Ambassador, pressures, threats from China, uh, kind of almost a daily occurrence, uh, not almost, pretty much a daily occurrence for Taiwan. And looking a little more broadly, you know, growing concerns around uh, foreign interference. We've had, that's been a presence here in the United States now for a number of political cycles. Uh, We saw it uh, in Australia emerge when it came to certain activities by China. Can you talk a little bit about sort of domestic politics in Taiwan and how you see the the question of uh, foreign interference, uh, foreign influence, uh, particularly from China? China's political influence operations uh, have been very intense in Taiwan, and um, it takes place on multiple fronts, very much in the form of disinformation, but also the manipulation of open social media platforms to disseminate that disinformation. And um, as you know, Taiwan, like the United States, is a very open society where free speech and and public discussion is very much uh, open. And so 
the Chinese tend to manipulate uh, that very open space. And so uh, we have tried to respond by increasing domestic media literacy uh, campaigns and mm-hmm. trying to you know, alert the public that all the information that, that you see online and, and around uh, has to be questioned uh, with a, a rational and scientific and, and a, a democratic perspective. But that is one aspect. Another aspect is the use of economic leverage uh, to coerce mm sectors of society. And that is also something that not only Taiwan, but you know, Australia, obviously, and some other countries are, are also facing. So um, we, this is a, a bigger and more complicated challenge. And, and so it's important that we work with other countries to, to, to find those tools to counter that economic coercion. Um, we noticed that in the EU, um, they are deliberating a toolbox to uh, uh, help their member states counter such economic coercion. Mm-hmm. In the United States, there's also been a bipartisan legislative initiative um, aimed at uh, supporting uh, or allocating a more attention uh, in the area of countering economic coercion. And so I think it's an, an effort that requires collective action. Uh, no single country can deal with it alone, uh, given the size and scope of the Chinese market and their very sophisticated use of tools of you know, manipulating and, and using economic leverage to coerce other countries. So um, this is an ongoing challenge, and we will continue to, to address them, hopefully uh, with the support of other uh, friends and partners, especially uh, the democratic and open societies that also respect market rules. Sobering to hear your description. It certainly feels like this set of challenges will only grow as political cycles you know, continue uh, in your country, in ours, and elsewhere around the world. I know we're running a little short on time. I did want to touch on kind of the geopolitical and security dimension for Taiwan and ask, ask you this question, B. Kim, and that is, you know, I think one of the most significant developments over the last 12 to 18 months has been the prospect for deeper, closer collaboration and relations between Taiwan and Japan. And I would like to hear your sort of assessment of of where they are today, particularly now that we have uh, a new prime minister in Tokyo, uh, Prime Minister Kishida, a defense minister who has taken a personal interest in Tokyo to Japan, Taiwan relations, and what you see in the near to medium term for uh, Taiwan's relations with Japan. Well, first on the very top level, uh, we appreciate that President Biden has engaged Japan and other like-minded partners around the world, including Australia, um, NATO, G7, uh, Mm -hmm. in underscoring the importance of peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait. I think there is increasing awareness that the security of Taiwan and stability in the Indo-Pacific region are very critical components of global interest. And and so other stakeholders are also um, underscoring the importance of, of that aspect. Japan in particular, uh, given its geostrategic interests as well as its location, uh, has an interest in um, the continuing stability and maintaining the status quo of the Taiwan Strait. 
so, you know, on the summit level, uh, there have been some uh, joint statements of, of interest. Of course, Japan is, is an ally of the United States and security interests are also uh, closely linked uh, through that alliance framework. Now, the second level down um, involves, you know, the, the people and, and public sentiment. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the people of Taiwan and the people of Japan um, have developed a very close emotional and sentimental uh, friendship. And in Taiwan, we often call it a virtuous cycle of helping each other, of kindness. Mm-hmm. And um, when Japan had you know, faced the crisis of, of the Fukushima, the nuclear um, reactor and tsunami, and you know, the people of Taiwan most generously were the largest foreign donors of humanitarian support. And the Japanese have tried to repay that generosity over many years, including the most recent vaccine donation. But Mm -hmm. what I'm saying is this has evolved into kind of a people-to-people friendship and fondness, you know, including before COVID days, a lot of travel and tourism and cultural economic ties and trust uh, between the two peoples. And so I think that forms a very important foundation. There's a kind of a common understanding that security of the region is is important for all of us. And and so the Japanese have have also taken an interest in being supportive of Taiwan. And then there's the other dimension, of course, on the economic security side, where Japan, like the rest of the world, has felt deeply the disruptions of that COVID has presented on on global supply chains, and and they are actively engaging with Taiwan in terms of the technology, mm. semiconductor sector, and and how we can work together. You know, Japan's always been a technology powerhouse, and you know that added to Taiwan's manufacturing capabilities and advantages. There are many opportunities for partnering together, and so so that that interest takes place on on multiple levels. But you know, ultimately on the security side, it's clear that any disruption of or breach of the security in the Taiwan Strait will have enormous consequences of other uh, neighboring stakeholders. And so it's only natural that other stakeholders should also take an interest in ensuring that conflict doesn't take place in uh, working together to deter um, any contemplation of a military action that would disrupt the peace and stability of the region. No, thanks, B. Kim. I think that's a very comprehensive laydown of gives hopefully our listeners a very much more textured understanding beneath the surface of relations between the two neighbors. So we're, we're coming close to, to time. And as we wrap up, I wanted to ask Morgan to join us. I'm pleased to have her uh, join this episode of Tea Leaves. Uh, Morgan has been with the Asia Group for about a year and a half. And she has a just a super interesting background. Uh, mother is Taiwanese, father is French. She speaks Mandarin and Arabic. Already a number of different interesting positions since uh, finishing up school. TV broadcasting in London, a bartender in Taiwan, and a bookseller in Paris. But I wanted to ask Morgan to join. She wanted to raise a couple questions with you, Ambassador, that might be a little bit more on the personal side for you to, to reflect on. Morgan. Thank you, Rexon, and thank you, Ambassador Xiao, for joining our podcast today. I wanted to ask you a few questions about your experience bridging cultures and generations. How would you say your international and multicultural upbringing across Taiwan and the United States has influenced your perspective 
your career choices and decision to get involved in Taiwanese politics? And how did that perspective impact your style of political leadership? In short, my, you know, my upbringing, my family background and my experience of living in different societies and cultures, I think helped develop a ability to to engage cross-culturally. And I think that's been very uh, helpful in in my position now as being a bridge between Taiwan and the United States and finding those opportunities for engagement. But I think another important aspect is I happened to come of age uh, during a time of rapid change uh, in Taiwan. And and that was the democratization. Uh, Taiwan ended martial law uh, in 1987. And um, we had our first election, a general election for the legislature in 1992 and then first ever presidential election in 96. And that happened to be a time where, you know, intellectually and politically, I was developing my my own ideas about politics. And I think it had two important impacts. And one is that I came to realize how unfair the world was treating Taiwan. We feel always that we have the ability and we're eager to contribute and be part of the global community. And yet uh, the world... Uh, marginalizes Taiwan from the United Nations. Uh, the world suppresses uh, Taiwan's international participation space. Um, and it seems that um, until recently, there was a lot of silence in response to Chinese bullying uh, against Taiwan's global participation. So that really um, got me fired up as a young person. And I, I felt that I, I should do more to expand Taiwan's international space. And I think the second impact would be the fact that, as I said, Taiwan was democratizing. And, and it was a moment of tremendous change in Taiwan. You know, We were having our first ever presidential election, and yet the Chinese were firing missiles at us. And, you know, apparently every struggle we were making to make advances in our democracy uh, also meant that we would counter even more difficult challenges coming from across the strait in the PRC. And so this, the you know, the challenges just continue. But I'm just so proud that Taiwan has developed into a very resilient society. And despite all the difficulties and challenges, Taiwan has uh, also become one of the most progressive and diverse uh, societies of Asia. And um, we we seek to protect and defend those basic rights that have not come about easily, um, you know, the basic freedoms and, and the democracy that we have today. And, and, you know, I happen to come of age during all of this happening. And, and so I think it's further hardened my commitment and, and my sense of mission that, you know, maximizing the global opportunities that we have, the support from friends and and democracies around the world, mm-hmm. while also you know working hard to minimize those threats to our democracy, is is really a, a lifelong mission of mine up until now. And and I appreciate all all the support that's been given to us, but at the same time, the challenges and the hurdles uh, have also made us tougher than than ever. And and I think that's why the Taiwanese um, have really become very resilient as well. Thanks, Morgan. I have to ask Representative Xiao, will you run for office again in the future? That's not in the planning. (laughs) In there, done that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, Ambassador Xiao, thank you so much for vibrant, rich conversation. Simply terrific. I really appreciate it. 
Well, thank you, Rexon, and thank you, Morgan. I do, again, appreciate this opportunity to, to engage with your listeners, and I hope to have a, a chance to meet you in person sometime, Morgan. Um, this partnership with, with Asia Group is, is very meaningful. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners. Please be sure to rate and follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also access the full video of our conversation on YouTube and at theasiagroup.com. We'll see you next time on Tea Leaves.